Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Well, uh, we're continuing our series on a closer look at these wonderful 12 ordinary men. Now, the thing, though, that I really want you to keep in mind, especially tonight, well, all the time, but I'm bringing it back to your remembrance tonight, is I want you to see your lives in juxtaposition to theirs because we're learning from them. So it's important that you do that, okay? Because we're really trying to wrap up Peter. Peter is extra special, let me tell you. Every time I just know this is going to be the last day we talk about Peter, there's something else I discover about this man. I'm like, oh, I can't leave this out. But we're getting to the end toward Peter. And then everybody else, they pale in comparison. So, so they really do. They're, well, I'm just saying, they're just not. Peter is really, you know, he's extra special. So this is why we're spending so much time on him. So <clears throat> we ended last time. We're talking about one of my favorite stories, so that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Um, we talked about Jesus coming to his disciples one night uh, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, where we all know that wonderful story where he walked on the water. Um, and of all of the disciples that were in this boat at that time, who was the one who jumped out of the boat? Wonderful Peter. Um, there's the Lord, he must have thought. I mean, at least he was thinking right. And um, he was also thinking, I'm here but the Lord is there. So of course, I want to get to be exactly where he is. See, that's the, the beauty when you think about Peter. That was truly his heart. He really wanted to be wherever the Lord was. So it wasn't like he was just reckless and just wasn't thinking. He truly, truly, truly wanted to be wherever Jesus was. So we have to kind of give him credit for that. The other disciples, on the other hand, they were wondering, they were under the impression that they saw a ghost. And we talked about that, and I'm not going to go over it really again, but you can jot this down if you weren't here last week. Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter, verse 26. Um, they talk about, well, I might as well, I'll just read the message. It says, meanwhile, the boat was far out to sea when the wind came up against them, and they were battered by the waves. At about 4 o'clock in the morning, so this is giving us the time frame, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. They were scared out of their wits. A ghost, they said, crying out in terror. Before anyone knew it, Peter was out of the boat walking on the water. The rest of the disciples were still clinging to their seats, trying to make sure that they didn't fall overboard in the storm. But Peter was out of the boat without even giving it a second thought. That is why, that is what we actually call involvement, serious involvement. Only after he left the boat and walked some distance did Peter think about the danger, and that's when he did what? He began to sink. And that is so true for all of us in the midst of any storm that you may be in. If you just keep your focus and keep your eyes on Jesus. So if you're doing that, that means you must be keeping your eyes where? On the word. As long as you do that, you will walk on the water with Jesus to your destination. It's only until you start looking at all of the variables of the storm that you too begin to sink. And that seems so simple, but it's really so real. And it's just a matter of deciding that that's what you're going to do. So <clears throat> oftentimes people look at this particular incident and like we said last week, they criticize Peter's lack of faith. But we do have to give him credit 
because he was the one who left the boat in the first place. Just like you will have people who you may be standing and believing God for something. And other people will sit and criticize you and talk about you and make you feel like you are one of the silliest people ever. Do not pay attention to that. You've got to pay attention to what it is that you're believing. That is what makes a difference, okay? That is so, so, so important. Um, we should also consider the fact that <laughs> Peter denied Christ. Now, we know that he did, but we've got to put that into context as well. No, Judas betrayed. Denied and betrayed are two different things, okay? All right, very good. Okay, so Peter denied Christ. Um, turn with me to John's Gospel, the 18th chapter, because we want to show you something else about Peter. He and one other disciple, probably his longtime friend John, were the only ones, again, follow Peter's heart. They were the only two who followed Jesus to the high priest's house to see what would become of Jesus. Everybody else was, you know, more interested in their own dynamic, what was going on with them. But if you look at John's Gospel, the 18th chapter and the 15th verse, I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. It says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the residence of the high priest. The message breaks it down a little bit more because it says Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. That other disciple was known to the chief priest, and so he went in with Jesus to the chief priest's courtyard. Peter had to stay outside. Then the other disciple went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and got Peter in. What I really like about that is, again, it shows you Peter's heart. Even though he knew he was not well-known enough to get into the courtyard, that did not matter. He was going to accompany the Lord and do whatever it was he could. It didn't matter. That's so important because that's showing you something about the grit with which he conducted his life. Again, so often we see any kind of opposition at all, and what do we do? We back away because it's just like, well, that's going to be hard. I don't know. They don't know me. I can't do this. I can't do that. You talk yourself right out of whatever. He didn't do that, and I really, really appreciate that about him. In the courtyard of the high priest's house, Peter was the only one close enough for Jesus to turn and look him in the eyes when the rooster crowed. And if we look at Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter, verse 61, it says this, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Um, the message says, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. At that very moment, the last word hardly off his lips, a rooster crowed. Just then, the master turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered what the master had said to him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and cried and cried and cried. Why did he cry and cry and cry? Because his heart was still, you're still looking at the man's heart. And I think that that's so important. So long after the other disciples had forsaken Christ and fled in fear, why? For their own lives, because again, they were thinking about themselves. Peter was virtually alone in a position where such temptation could snare him because despite his fear and weakness, he couldn't abandon Christ 
completely. That's the sign of a true leader. When almost everyone else has bailed out, he tried to stay as close to his Lord as he could get. He wasn't the kind of leader who was content to send messages to the troops from afar. You know, we hear the expression, you should go down with the ship, because if you really care about something, you should be there till the very end. You know, um, you think, and, and they even depict this sometimes in movies. Like if you see a child who's challenged, and that child may be in the hospital, where is the mother usually? in the hospital with the child. She's not at home drinking tea, looking at something else. That's just, it's just, we know that that's kind of like what you're supposed to do. It's just something you're supposed to do. Well, Peter, that's exactly what he did. Um, he had a passion to be, a, to be personally involved. So you always find him close to the action, and you would with any particular leader. That was the raw fabric of which Peter was made an insatiable inquisitiveness, a willingness to take initiative, and a passion to be personally involved. Now, here's the other thing. It was up to the Lord to do what? He had to train and shape him. Because frankly, that kind of raw material, if not submitted to the Lord's control, can be downright dangerous. That's why I truly do believe that even when you think of children when they're born, what does it tell us in the word? Children <laughs> bound in the heart of a child is foolishness. So therefore you have a parent who's supposed to guide you, who's supposed to shape you, who's supposed to help get you from point A to point B. Because if left to their own devices, oh my, it might be a totally, totally different situation. So what are we? We're giant children. So this is exactly what the Lord does with us as well if we allow him to, because he has given us free will. That is important. So how did the Lord take a man cut from such raw, rough cloth and turn him into a leader? That's the question. For one thing, he made sure that Peter had the life experiences that formed him into the kind of leader that Christ wanted him to be. That's a really strong statement, but a very, very valid one. It is, in this sense, that true leaders are made, not just born. We all have heard the expression, I'm sure you have, I know I've heard it a lot, the school of hard knocks. Has anybody heard that? Okay, because experience can be a hard teacher. That's why it really is better if you can learn experientially through somebody else's life and you don't have to necessarily walk through certain things. In Peter's case, the ups and downs of his experience were dramatic and often quite painful. His life was filled with torturous zigs and zags. It was not always smooth sailing for him. The Lord allowed him to grow through three years of tests and difficulties that gave him a lifetime of the kind of experiences every true leader must endure. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, why do you think he did it? Do you think he found some kind of satisfaction in watching Peter be tormented? No, not at all. The experiences, even the difficult ones, were all necessary to shape Peter into the man he needed to become. We can all learn something from this as well. You see, perhaps some of the trials and challenges that you may have endured in this life's journey, God has allowed to mold you into the person he needs you to be. 
You were created to fulfill a purpose that no one else can accomplish. Just like Peter, God must train and shape you to become what he needs you to be. Once we become mindful of that fact, then life is not, and, and when, once we become mindful of that, we actually become mindful of the fact that life is not about us. See, we're trained from, you know, the time you're in school because the world is looking at things from a humanistic way. We're taught to think of ourselves, to do everything for ourselves, to be all about ourselves. That's not how God or why God created each and every individual. He created us for a distinct purpose. And once you really get that, it's sort of like you change your mindset. You start to think as a covenant-minded person. And once you do that, you find life is altogether different. It, it's just different for you. Your journey, even in the most difficult of times, becomes more tolerable. Because when you're going through even a challenging time, you realize that all you have to do is just keep your focus on him and allow him to mold you and guide you. And then you know that you ultimately ultimately do what? You win. So when you know that and you have that confidence, it's just so much different than when you don't. So since we know that God is not a respecter of persons, we can find solace in learning from Peter's life and rejoice in the fact that God is creating greatness within our lives. But here is the key, like I mentioned before, we have to give him the access. That is so important. Now, the Apostle Peter learned a lot through hard experience. He learned, for example, that crushing defeat and deep humiliation often follow hard on the heels of great victories. Justin, I'm going to give you an example. Just after Jesus had commended him on his great confession, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter. And we're going to look at the 16th verse, Matthew 16, 16. I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified, even though every translation pretty much says the same thing. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, the son of the living God. Peter suffered, however. He said that, and oh, that was just wonderful, right? But after that, he suffered the harshest rebuke ever recorded in the New Testament. One moment, Christ called Peter blessed, promising him the keys of the kingdom. You're in Matthew 16. Just look at verses 17 and 19. I'm going to share it again out of the Amplified. Then Jesus answered him, blessed, happy, spiritually secure, favored by God. Are you, Simon, son of Jonah? Because flesh and blood, mortal man, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades' death will not overpower it by preventing the resurrection of the Christ. I will give you the keys, authority of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind, forbid, declare to be improper and unlawful on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, permit, declare lawful on earth, will have already been loosed in heaven. So that's, I mean, you know, for the Lord to say that to you, I mean, that's got to be, you, you can just imagine how this man must have felt. Okay, well, right after that, in the next verses, Christ addresses Peter differently. Drop down to the 23rd verse. 
This is Matthew 16. If you look at it in the New King James Version, it says, but he, meaning Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, an offense, actually, it could, you know, if you really go through some translations, it means a stumbling block, okay? If we look at it in the Amplified Classic Edition, it says, but Jesus turned away from Peter and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are in my way, an offense and a hindrance and a snare to me, for you are minding what partakes not of the nature and quality of God, but of men. And in the message, it puts it simply, but Jesus didn't swerve. Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. Now, again, we can learn from this because sometimes we need to do the very same thing. When it comes to certain associates that you have, it could be even family members that you have, you could be believing God for something because you are looking at it not from the natural, but you're looking at it from the spiritual, and they will certainly come and give you all kinds of thoughts, ideas, and suggestions because remember, the enemy can use anyone who yields themselves to him. He will use some of the people closest to you sometimes. And it's designed to get you off track of what you are believing. Please make sure you pay attention to that and don't allow it to happen. Because this is exactly, Jesus of course knew, this is what he did and said to Peter. So you can only imagine how Peter must have felt. No, he was talking directly to Peter. And do me a favor, do me a favor, because this is important. Just write down your question. I promise I'll answer it at the end, okay? Very good, but he was, this was Jesus speaking directly to Peter, okay? Now, that incident occurred shortly after Peter's triumphant confession. Jesus announced to the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem where he would be turned over to the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Upon hearing that, Peter's reaction, we find it in the 22nd verse, and we had gone over this once before. But if you just back up to the 22nd verse, this is actually when Peter was so bold, he actually put his hands on Jesus. Because in the New King James Version, verse 22 of chapter 16 of Matthew says, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this is not to happen to you. And then, um, if you look at it in the Amplified Classic Edition, then Peter took him aside to speak to him privately and began to reprove and charge him sharply, saying, God forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you. Now, granted, this is him being emotional. He is upset. He does not want to see any harm come to the Lord. But you must remember, Peter was not born again. Peter was acting just in the natural, and he was upset, and this was his response. So it's not like that's so strange when you really think about it. So in the message it says, then Jesus, made it, when he had made it clear to his disciples that it was now necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, sub submit to an ordeal of suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, be killed, and then on the third day be raised up alive, Peter took him in hand, protesting, impossible master. That can never be. Now, this is the thing. When you think about it, Peter's sentiment is somewhat understandable because he was really thinking strictly from a human standpoint. He did not know the plan of God. 
I mean, he didn't know. Without realizing it, he was really, though, trying to dissuade Christ from the very thing he came to earth to do. Which again, if you are believing for something from a spiritual standpoint, you will have people come at you when they're looking at it from a natural or human standpoint to try to dissuade you from whatever it is you're believing God for. And you have to, that's why praying for discernment is always so important. You have to realize that you've got to stand completely on the word and not waver. It's very, very important. Very, very important. Um, as usual, though, with dear Peter, he was still speaking when he should have been listening. <laughs> uh, Jesus' words to Peter were as stern as anything he ever spoke to any individual. So you know this must have gotten Peter's attention. I mean, it had to. So now, through the painful experience of being rebuked by the Lord, Peter also learned something. He learned that he was vulnerable to Satan. Satan could fill his mouth just as surely as the Lord could fill it. Peter minded, if Peter minded the things of men rather than the things of God, or if he did not do the will of God, that's a problem, okay? It's a big problem. He could actually be an instrument of the enemy. Again, we can learn from this because this is a truth that is the same for each of us today. You, it's wonderful, we're born again, we are spirit-filled, the Godhead lives within us, but we still have a free will. And it is up to us who and whom we are yielding to. We make, that's a decision that we're warring against really all the time. Now yes, the more spiritually mature you get, it should be a little bit easier, but don't ever get to a point where you turn your back on your flesh and just feel like you have arrived. Don't be that silly because that's not true. You are always at war when it comes to this. And the truth is the same for believers and non-believers too. Just like gravity, if you throw something up in the air, it's gonna come down. Just like when it rains outside, it rains on the just and the unjust. Well, this is something that is true for believers and non-believers. And that's something that you can keep in mind, especially if you're working in a secular environment, even if you're working in a church environment, okay? People are people. And again, it depends on whom they are yielding themselves to. They will say some things that can really shock you, especially if they're believers. You wouldn't think that they would say such a thing. But, you know, they do, which is why you always have to be on guard. Later, Peter fell victim to Satan again on the night of Jesus' arrest. This time, he learned the hard way that he was humanly weak and could not trust his own resolve. All of his boasting promises and earnest resolutions did not keep him from falling. After declaring, and this was really bad because he did this in front of everyone. You know, you see people who are real quick to tell you, oh, all of this stuff, and they do it because it's almost like they're so proud of the decision they've made. They just try to say it in front of everybody. So he boasted in front of everybody what, that he would never deny Christ. You know, he's doing all this. <sighs> After declaring that, not only <laughs> did he deny him, but he punctuated his denials with passionate curses. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 69 through 75. Matthew 26, 
verses 69 through 75, and I'm going to share it out of the Amplified, because again, the Amplified does what? It gives us the qualifiers. So starting with verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them too, for even your Galilean accent gives you away. Then he began to curse, that is, to invoke God's judgment on himself and swear an oath, I do not know the man. And at that moment, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the prophetic words of Jesus when he had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly in repentance. Satan was sifting him as wheat. And Peter learned how much chaff and how little substance there was in him and how watchful and careful he must be to rely only on the Lord's strength. At the same time, he learned that in spite of his own sinful tendencies and spiritual weaknesses, the Lord wanted to use him and would sustain him and preserve him no matter what. Now see, this to me is also very interesting because Peter wasn't born again. So think about it. He, with what was available to him, he even knew that as messed up as some of the decisions he made and the actions he performed were, were that God still loved him and Jesus loved him enough that he still could use him, he could still work with him. And he kept going back at it, trying to see how he could be used of the Lord. Here we are, born again, spirit-filled, okay, the redeemed of the Lord, and we so easily just kind of give up or we so easily just get complacent and we see all things happening around us and it's just like, well, what can I do? You know, we turn on the TV, well. It's almost like <sighs> Christians are taking life as it comes. It's like they're looking at a TV program and they just see one scene after another scene after another scene. And it's almost like they don't feel as if there's anything that they can do to change it. And that is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us to be that way. And that's exactly why we have to fight with everything in us not to be that way. So at the same time, Peter learned that in spite of his own, okay, I already told you that. <laughs> in spite of it, God could still use him. In spite of, no matter if we feel as if we've done nothing to lead a person to Christ, or we feel as if we've done nothing to help somebody along the way, guess what? Every single day, that's why I love that scripture that says each and every day. It's like, to me, I greet each day like it's you get to begin again. So you can start all over again. You can do it again. Each morning is beautiful. It's a gift to you. So change it. Don't just sit and just say, well, I don't know. No, you do know. Do something about it. 
I mean, come on. You tell people about the best movie that's out. You tell them about the best restaurant. You can tell them about the best pound cake recipe. Then you can tell them, you know what? You need to come to church. Or you know what? You need to go. I mean, you can do that. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't require great skill. So it's just a matter of doing it. So all those things Peter learned, he had to learn it by experience. Sometimes the experiences were bitter, distressing, humiliating, you just saw that, and painful. Other times, though, they were encouraging and uplifting and perfectly glorious. He did experience that, too. And again, we can say the same thing with our lives. Everything is not always a valley. We do have some mountaintop experiences, and that's a blessing. And I wonder, though, when we have those mountaintop experiences, that's, this just came to me. When you tend to be in a valley, you always seem to find time to pray. Because when you're in that valley, you are asking the Lord to get you up to help you climb up the rough side of the mountain, okay? We always find time to do that. But when you are on the mountaintop, do you spend equal time just thanking him and praising him and appreciating the fact that you are there? Something to think about, right? Something to think about. Well, Peter had some wonderful experiences. Turn with me. You're in Matthew. Just go right over to the next chapter, to Matthew 17. And this is just absolutely beautiful. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. First, I'm going to share it out of the Amplified Bible. This is Matthew 17, starting with verse 1. Six days later, Peter took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I'm going to pause here. Remember we talked about that inner circle? So who's this? Who's with him here? The inner circle again, okay? So it's Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And his appearance changed dramatically in their presence, and his face shone with heavenly glory, clear and bright like the sun. And his clothing became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Then Peter began to speak and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good and delightful and auspicious that we are here. If you wish, I will put up three sacred tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased and delighted. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. If we look at it in the message, it says, six days later, three of them saw that glory. Jesus took Peter and the brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes. Sunlight poured from his face. His clothes were filled with light. Then they realized that Moses and Elijah were also there in deep conversation with him. Peter broke in, because this is Peter again. He's, he's going to be proactive. Master, this is a great moment. What would you think if I built three memorials here on the mountain, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? 
While he was going on like this, babbling, a light radiant cloud enveloped them and sounding from deep in the cloud a voice, this is my son marked by my love, focus on my delight, listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell flat on their faces, scared to death, which I thought was a very interesting way of putting it. But Jesus came over and touched them. Don't be afraid. When they opened their eyes and looked around, all they saw was Jesus, only Jesus. Either way, Peter made the most of his experiences, whether they were good ones or not so good, gleaning from them lessons that helped make him the great leader that he became. Now the third element in, make, in the making of a leader besides the raw material and the right life experiences, because we're kind of showing you what shapes and makes a great leader, is the right character. Character, of course, is absolutely critical in leadership. Now our country's current moral decline is directly linked to the fact that we have elected, appointed, and hired too many leaders who have no character. In recent years, it has been argued that character really doesn't matter in leadership. What a person does in his or her personal life supposedly should not factor in whether he or she is deemed fit for, pu for a public leadership role. You can switch on any channel that you want and you will hear a similar thing such as that. I mean, it's, you know, everyone has their free will, everyone can do what it is that they need to do, and everyone can do what it is that they want to do. Hmm. That perspective, however, is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. Character does matter in leadership, and it matters a lot. In fact, character is what makes leadership possible. Now, I'm going to put a pin in this, because this is something. We hear about a lot of mass shootings all over the place. And we hear about children, some of whom are involved in them. You know, I, I don't mean the victims. There are some of these children who are coming into the school with guns, and they're deciding, you know, I guess they're having a bad day, whatever, and they're just shooting people. They're just killing people. Young people in general don't seem to have a value for human life as much as maybe they did, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And people are, of course, you know, we should have maybe different gun laws. That's up for people to dispute one way or another how they feel. But the thing that gets to me is people are not really addressing or getting the, to the root of the situation. Character has a lot to do with whether or not somebody is going to pick up a gun and go in and start shooting people. And our young people, when you really start to think about it, and see, we need to think about it. Just like you're here, because we're studying the word. We're not glossing over the word. We need to start studying what's going on around us. Right now, we're living in a time where if parents even show up with their kids at all, it is almost miraculous. Because we've gone from having two parents in the home to having 
you know, only a majority of single parents to, okay, we have people now, it's almost like if you find people who are married, that's very strange because most people don't even bother to get married now. It's like all of this is just disintegrating in front of our eyes. We went from having a two-parent home to latchkey homes where we had latchkey kids. Now we even have kids that seem to be raising themselves and if they see their parents maybe once or twice a week like it's a meeting, then that's a good thing. The point is though, just like we talked about earlier, how Jesus molded and nurtured and shaped Peter and how children are born to have parents to try to do the same thing with them. If they're not receiving that, then they don't, their character isn't being molded or shaped or built. And the character becomes an issue. It can glean over into anything you discuss, not just shootings. It can, you know, everybody sits up, and, and we've had a lot of different spirited discussions even when it comes to racism in this country. And you know what? We can change the laws, but until you change the heart of man, that's the, that's the real challenge. That's the part that's got to be addressed. That's the characteristic that has to be changed. And until we, who are the salt of the earth, I mean, when it goes back to, well, what can we do? We can live the Bible that we read. We can live by faith and allow it to shine as a beacon among all people that we come in contact with. And we may be thinking, that, okay, well, all right, I do that. It's not making a difference. But I always use this analogy because it's perfect to me. If you stand in front of even a puddle, okay, on a corner somewhere, and you take a little rock and you just put it in that puddle, you start to see the water just ripple. It's like a little ripple effect. So the little bit that you do, you see, you do a little bit, I do a little bit, you do a little bit, then all of a sudden we can take something that looks like a little ripple effect and turn it into a tsunami. But we all have to band together and decide that we're going to do it. That is so critical. And we are living in a time right now, I don't know whether or not you've noticed, but we got to do something. Okay, we can't, I mean, you know, I know some people are just clinging to the fact, well, the Lord is going to come again. Yes, we are all looking forward to the day we see our someday coming king, but we don't know when that's going to be. So we can't just sit, hold our hands and think, well, you know, maybe he'll come tomorrow and put us out of our misery. No, we've got to become proactive. That's what we're, that's part of what we're called to do, right? I mean, that's what it says. Well, anyway, character definitely is what makes leadership possible. People simply cannot respect or trust those who lack character. Whether you think, it doesn't matter, I don't care what you think about who we have in the White House, who we have in Congress, who we have these people, I, it doesn't matter. Here's the point. You can look at the world's reaction to them that says speaks a lot. That speaks volumes. Do they really respect them? What do they really think about them? What is the response that they're getting from people? The response has a lot to do with their character. People simply cannot respect or trust anybody who, do, who lacks character. They don't. And if they do not respect a person, they certainly will not follow them. Time and truth go hand in hand. Leaders without character eventually disappoint their followers and lose their confidence. <laughs> the only reason such people are often popular is that they make other people who have no character feel better about themselves. <laughs> but they aren't real leaders. Again, this is why discernment is so important, that we can see clearly 
You know, it's not always what's said, but what isn't said. You've got to read in between the lines. And you have the Holy Spirit. He is what? Our advocate, our helper, our standby. He will make it clear. We just have to yield ourselves to him. Lasting leadership is grounded. You know, like if you plug in, they have these wonderful like orange extension cords, or you can even have appliances at home. And it's got that third little prong, that's like the grounding wire when you put it in. It's important that you have that. Well, guess what? Character is, leadership rather, is grounded by character. If there's no character, there really is no leadership. Character produces respect. And what does respect produce? Trust. And trust does what? It motivates followers. I'll say that again. Lasting leadership is grounded in character. Character produces respect. Respect produces trust. And trust motivates followers. Think about it. Even in the natural realm, most people do realize that true leadership is properly associated with character qualities like integrity, trustworthiness, respectability, unselfishness, humility, self-discipline, self-control, and courage. I'll say it again. Integrity, trustworthiness, respectability, unselfishness, humility, self-discipline, self-control, and courage. Such virtues reflect the image of God in a person. Although the divine image, image is severely tarnished in human and fallen humanity, because, you know, we are human, it has not been entirely erased. That's why even heathens recognize those qualities as desirable virtues, important requirements for true leadership. Even they know that, okay? Christ himself, we know, is the epitome of what a true leader ought to be. He is perfect in all attributes that make up the character of a leader. He is the embodiment of all the truest, purest, highest, and noblest qualities of leadership. Obviously, in spiritual leadership, the great goal and objective is to bring people to Christ-likeness. That is why the leader himself must manifest Christ-like character. That is why the standard for leadership in the church is set so high. The Apostle Paul summarized the spirit of the true leader when he wrote, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter and verse 1. And I love this. In the New King James Version, he simply puts, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The Amplified Classic Edition says, pattern yourselves after me. Here's the qualifier. Follow my example as I imitate and follow Christ, the Messiah. And the message says, it pleases me that you continue to remember and honor me by keeping up the traditions of the faith I taught you, all actual authority stems from Christ. Absolutely wonderful. So next week when we come back,
hopefully, we're going to finish up on Peter. Because <laughs> I'm like, OK, I've had enough. <laughs> and then the next person we're going to talk about is Andrew. And that's very interesting, if I must say so myself. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.